to second grade. You can go to children's church if they'd like. Kindergarten to second grade, go to children's church. And if you're new and want to take your kids there just to see where they are and where they're being settled, you're welcome to leave and go with them and come back. The rest of you turn to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. It's on page 1184 in the Pew Bible. And let me just begin by reading our text this morning, the first four verses. It says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven. So He became as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is superior to theirs. Last weekend, uh, I was out walking in the rain with my kids. Whenever we get those warm summer rains, I always drag my kids outside. And I'm like, come on, let's go. And we get soaked and, you know, stomp around in the puddles or whatever. And we were coming back uh, after it was raining and the rain had stopped. So we were walking home down the street. And out of the blue, as kids always do, out of the blue, they hit me one of, one of those profound kid questions. You know, like, Daddy, why can't I see air? You know, questions like that. Where you're like, ah. And they hit me with, I forget which kid it was, but one of them just said to me right out of the blue, Daddy, why can't I hear God talking? And I was like, hmm. So, so I had to kind of improvise. Uh, and this is what, I thought this was pretty good. Anyway, but I, 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 said, uh, I said, well, uh, Daddy just heard God talking. And they said, you did? What, what, what did he say? And, and, and I said, well, when it was raining, I think God was reminding us and telling us that he's good, that he takes care of the whole world, and that He sends His rain on those who love Him and even sends His rain on those who don't believe in Him. But He's a good God who takes care of us. And they kind of chuckled. And, but I don't think that's what they meant. Uh, <laughs> it's a question we adults ask. Why can't I hear God talking to me? It's a question we ask at difficult times in our lives. Uh, last Sunday we began studying Hebrews. Uh, if you're here the first time this Sunday, welcome. We're glad you're here with us. We've just begun a new sermon series. started last Sunday in Hebrews who did an introduction and so today we're diving in with the first four verses and what we saw last Sunday is that Hebrews was written to Christians who are somewhere in the middle of the Christian marathon they're not new Christians who've just come to faith nor do they see the finish line but they're in that middle stretch where it's so easy to get tired run down uh, discouraged and these Christians are being tempted to drop out of the race and so Hebrews is written to encourage flagging Christians to get with it in the race to follow Christ. That's what the the book is about. And it's interesting that the writer of Hebrews begins by talking about God speaking. Because when you're in the middle of the race and you do feel tired and you wonder, where is God? Why don't I sense God's presence? Where is God in this situation? And you pray and it's as if you feel a great iron curtain has slammed over the heavens and that your prayers and your efforts to somehow get in contact with God don't go anywhere. Why isn't God speaking? Why can't I hear Him? And the writer of Hebrews begins with God speaking. Look at verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He made the universe. 
The, the God of the Bible is a talking God. He talks. And not just in a general sense of like, you know, the heavens show us that he's a great God, but he's also a God who's not only revealed himself in nature, but who says actual words. He speaks. He has spoken. Uh, and so it says it right here. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Now, what is that talking about? What is that verse 1 all about there? Well, he's talking about what we would call today the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament Scriptures. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. So, you know, in the days of Israel, God spoke to Noah. He said, Noah, build me a boat. You know, a what? <laughs> yeah, I want you to build a boat. And he spoke to Abraham. He said, Abraham, get up, get up from the country where you are and I want you to go to a land I will show you. And he spoke to Moses. And he spoke to Joshua and to David and King Solomon, whose Proverbs we just finished studying for the last year. And God at various times and in different ways and all kinds of different people would speak things to this person and that person. There's all the prophets of the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and so on and so forth. So the history of Israel is the history of the people to whom the creator God of the universe actually spoke audible, clear words that they could understand. And they wrote that down, and that's what the Old Testament is, is the communication of God to Israel. And so God continued to speak at many times in various ways throughout Israel's history until finally came the last prophet. Who was the last prophet in Israel? It's Malachi. And he prophesied around 450-ish B.C., some, you know, give or take a decade or so. But somewhere around there he prophesied. And after Malachi spoke came the great silence. 400 years of silence where no longer did the Jews hear a prophet standing up and speaking. Uh, It's as if the heavens dried up and they were asking, why can't I hear God speaking for 400 years? And then after that 400 year period, suddenly God began to speak again. But this time he spoke in a dramatic new way. It was not through the prophets in the past like he used to. It was a new kind of speaking, a new message. And we see it in verse 2. It says, but in these last days he has spoken to us, not to our forefathers, but to us by his son. Not through the prophets, but by his own son. Something dramatic has taken place. God has spoken again, but it's something new that we've never heard before. He's spoken in these last days by His Son. In fact, it's so dramatic, you get that phrase at verse 2. You see verse 2 there. It says, but in these last days. Now that is, that is a loaded theological phrase, the last days. It, it means more than just, you know, nowadays God's spoken by His Son, but it's a loaded phrase. It, basically, the connotation is the phrase we use today, the end times. You know, you hear that phrase, the end times. Some of you have read the Left Behind series. Some of you are interested in sort of, you know, is this, are we in the end times? Have we come to the end times? And, and the Hebrews, writer of Hebrews is saying, in these last days are these end times. Um, I think that although we're very interested in the end times in, the, in what the Bible has to say, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding, especially in the American evangelical church, about this whole topic. Uh, we incorrectly assume that the end times is something future that's about to happen. But this really is not a biblical understanding of that phrase. You know, look it up for yourself. Look up the phrase last days, 
end times, last hour, final hour, consummation of the ages. And what you find is that the New Testament writers consistently taught that with the coming of Jesus, we have entered into the last times. So the last times is the entire period from the first coming of Christ and, and until it reaches its conclusion at the second coming of Christ. In other words, it's the last segment in God's story. In God's plan for humanity, we're in the last lap. This is it. Okay? You're like, but it's taken 2,000 years. Well, yeah, you know, a 1,000 years to the Lord is as a day, and a day is as 1,000 years. I mean, God's on his own timetable. But the point is, in God's plan of what he's accomplishing, the, the gospel's being preached to the nations, and then it will finish when Christ returns. We're in the final stretch. So next time someone says, do you think we're in the last days? You can say, yeah, absolutely. Been in the last days since the coming of Christ. And here we are. This is the final phase. And it's been marked, not, we know it's the last days, not because Russia invaded Georgia or because, um, you know, we're fighting a war in Iraq. You know, what's happening in the Middle East? It, it's not the last days because Israel became a nation state in 1948. That's not the signal. It's not geopolitical events. It's the coming of the sun that marks the final stage in God's plans. The whole history of the world doesn't turn on the rise and fall of nations. It turns on the coming of God's Son into the world. Jesus is the great hinge, the great beginning of the end. And so, if we want to hear God speaking, if we want to know what God is saying to us, then we have to tune our antenna to the Son. We have to listen to the Son because God has spoken. We have to study His Word and listen to His voice in His Word. That's where this God is speaking today. It's through the Son. It's His final, ultimate, and great speaking to us in these last days. Now, who is the Son? Well, that's the interesting thing. is that Hebrews then goes on to give a rather lengthy description of what the Son is like. Who the Son is. Why is He so important that all of human history would turn on a great hinge into a final age, an epoch. Who is this Son that would bring this about? And we have this lengthy description of the Son. And so it, it's sort of like the, the focus shifts from God speaking to who the Son is. So look at verse 2. Uh, he spoken to us by His Son. Then here's a description. Whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So you have this long, really exalted uh, string of descriptors about who the Son is. In fact, it's so sort of exalted and beautiful that uh, some scholars have hypothesized that perhaps this was part of an ancient Christian hymn that they used to sing in the early church and that he took these familiar lines and put them into this. I mean, it, it, you know, it's a hypothesis just because the language is so elevated. And at first blush, when you read that list of descriptions of the Son, you know, you kind of think, ah, oh, it's kind of list and it's just a string of descriptors. I mean, all these random things. But the more you look at it, I think there's actually a structure to this. I think there's actually an order that's really interesting and that helps us understand what's going on here. Um, so I, I want to I try to show you what the order, that the structure of this little list is. And I have to teach you some, like, you know, uh, Bible nerd words, okay? So, um, uh, have you ever heard of a chiasmus or a chiasm? Okay, probably not. It's it, very common in the New Testament. We don't really use it today. But it, it's a way of uh, organizing literature. It's a structure. And it's 
Essentially what a chiasmus is, is it's an inverted parallelism, which means it goes like this. A, B, B, A. That's the pattern. A, B, B, A. Very common in the Bible. Not something we use a lot today. Example. Uh, Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Chiasmus. A, Sabbath, B, man, B, man, A, Sabbath. And, and like I said, these are found all over the Bible. It's just a way of writing. You know, it's like a haiku or, uh, you know, iambic pentameter or something. It's just, it's a style of writing. And what I think is that as the writer of, of Hebrews here is describing who the Son is, this list of characteristics is actually a chiasmus. It's really cool. Are you getting excited about this like I am? I love this. It's really interesting. hope you're tracking with me here. This gets pretty cool, okay? So and the, the chiasmus here in Hebrews is going to go A, B, C, C, B, A. So there are three points. There's an A and an A, the beginning and end of it. And then the second thing about Jesus is paralleled to the second to last thing. That's B and B. And then in the middle, there's a C and a C that go together and form this nice little parallelism. The word chiasmus comes from the Greek letter chi or chi, which is, we, we write it like an X. So you see the inversion, you know? It goes in like that and it comes back out. So that's, anyway, more TMI. Okay, so. All right, so anyway, let, let's look at the chiasmus here. So let's look at the A first. What, what is it saying about the Son and the first and last things we hear about Him? And basically what it's going to tell us is that the Son is the King of the universe who has been enthroned at God's right hand. That He's the reigning King of the universe. Look, it starts in verse 2 where it says, uh, in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. Here we go. Here's the first A. Whom He appointed heir of all things. Now look down at verse 3. It says, After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Those two ideas are parallel. So you see there, after he's provided purification for sins, verse 3, he's died, he's buried, Jesus then rose, he ascended to the Father's right hand, and what happened when he got to heaven? He sat down at God's right hand on the throne. He assumed the reign of of the universe. He was anointed and appointed king. When Jesus went back into heaven, it's like, you know, you imagine the big uh, uh, rows of angels watching him as he walks down the aisle with his robes on and he he sits upon the throne and the crown of the universe is placed upon him and the scepter is placed in his hand. He is the reigning king. Now, the same thing is in verse 2. Look at verse 2. It says, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things. Maybe you read that and you're thinking, what does that have to do with being the king? That's kingship language. And let me show you where it's from. This is really cool. We have to go back to the Old Testament. And now listen, you have to get used to this if we're going to study Hebrews together. You just have to deal with this. It's soaked with the Old Testament. It's soaked with Old Testament allusions and quotations. So we're going to, as we study Hebrews, going to be doing back and forth, back and forth, Old Testament, New Testament. You just got to do it, otherwise you're not going to get Hebrews. So, like I said, this is going to be a little more challenging study. But um, put a bookmarker here. and I think this reference to being heir of all things is actually an allusion back to Psalm 2. I want you to turn to Psalm 2 in the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 2, second Psalm. It's on page 532 in the Pew Bible. What Psalm 2 is, Psalm 2 is an enthronement psalm. 
It's a psalm that they would have sung or performed or said together in Israel when a new king was seated on the throne in Jerusalem. So when David was crowned or Solomon or whoever those descendants were, they, they would have probably read or sung this psalm. And it's a psalm about the enthronement of the king. Notice what it says. Look at Psalm chapter 2, verse 6. God says, just jump in the middle here, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. The king has been seated. Verse 7, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth, your possession. So when the king is seated... There's a proclamation made that he is now in a special relationship to God as sort of like a father and son. And guess what? God is going to give you the nations. So David, you don't have to worry about the Philistines and the other nations around you. God's going to give them to you as an inheritance. Now go back to Hebrews chapter 1. All right? When it says in verse 2 that the son has been appointed heir of all things, I think that's language right out of Psalm chapter 2. In fact, isn't it interesting? Look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. It says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father? Where's that from? Psalm 2. So in other words, I think this is what I think is going on. Just try to sum all this jumping around up. Um, as the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us who Jesus is in this chiasmus, He's drawing upon the imagery of Psalm 2 to describe Jesus for us. Just as in the old days, the son of David was seated on the throne and said he was the son in Jerusalem and and he was going to rule over the nations around Israel, so in a similar way, the true son of God has been seated on the heavenly throne and he's been given the inheritance to possess not just the nations around Israel, but the whole universe. Everything is his. Jesus is the king of the universe. He's reigning as the ruler of the universe. He wasn't voted on. There was no convention. There were no nominees or delegates. He was buried, rose from the dead, and by virtue of that, he reigns as the king of the universe. You know, when um, Jewish families, uh, especially Orthodox Jewish families, uh, that use traditional blessings uh, at a meal, they'll pray at at mealtime like we do. And they'll thank God for the food. And there's a common blessing for the, the food and for the bread. It starts off like this. It's Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, which means, blessed are you, Lord our God. Melech HaOlam means king of the universe. You know, God is the king of the universe. But here in Hebrews, we are told that the Son, Jesus, has been seated as king of the universe. He's the heir of all things. He's, been, he's seated at God's right hand, which is the position of authority and privilege. So do you want to hear God talking? Do you want to know where God is speaking? He's speaking through His Son, who is the King of the universe. And we need to listen to Him. Is the problem that God's not speaking, or is the problem that we're not listening to who this God is, who this Jesus is? But let's move on. Let's look at the next phase of the chiasmus. So it begins and ends with a reference to his kingship and his inheritance. And then the second phase is he's not only the king of the universe, but B, he's also the maker of the universe. Look at verse 2. It says, The Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. I mean, that's remarkable. 
that before Jesus became Jesus, the incarnate Jesus of Nazareth, he was the eternal son, and God made the universe through him. Uh, So in other words, just think about this. Jesus, the son of God, created the universe. Let me say that again. Just let it sink in. Jesus, the Son of God, created the universe. I have to confess, I don't often think of Jesus that way. I think I think of him more in his, that short span of his earthly ministry where he was, you know, helping those who were sick and blessing the children. And, you know, that little drawing of him holding the lamb. You've seen that one? You know, he's like, hmm, he's got the little lamb there. Yeah, and he was, he was Jesus who was among us. He was kind and humble. But I have to remember that before the Son of God became incarnate as Jesus of Nazareth, he existed eternally and God made the universe through him. And this is what the early Christians all believed. You know, you look at the writings of John. And John says, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And by him, all things were made. Or Colossians uh, chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. Jesus has made everything. And not only did He make all things, but let's look at the other part of the chiasm, the second B. So A-A-B-B, the second B is down in verse 3 where it's this little phrase, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. So not only did He make the world, but the other half of that chiasm is that He sustains the world. The Greek word is, is pharaoh, to bear. He's caring. He's holding up all things. You know, think of that, uh, that picture from ancient mythology of Atlas. You know this picture? Atlas holding up the, the world. There's this big old ripped, jacked guy, you know, in a loincloth, like scrunting, and he's holding up the world on his shoulders. Okay? The biblical picture is that Jesus is holding up the world, but he's not even straining. He's just speaking a word. God spoke and the world came into existence. And by his word, God continues, Jesus, the Son continues to sustain the world by his power. Have you ever thought of this? Just throw out a random little philosophical thing for you. Question. Why do the laws of physics continue to be the laws of physics? Have you ever thought about that? I don't know. Why, why is gravity still gravity? Why can physicists uh, reduce a lot of the, the functions of the universe into mathematical equations that continue to prove true? But why? Why should reality continue to behave? We just kind of take it for granted. Well, there are these laws of physics. Why are there laws of physics? Why are things consistent? Why are we able to do science? And the answer is that not only did God make this world that we can study through science, but that he continues to to uphold reality. He's holding it with his word. You know, if God were to just blink mentally for one second, it would all go poof. He's sustaining and upholding the universe. And that is who Jesus is. He is the ruler and king of the universe. He is the maker and sustainer of the universe. Which leads to the third point of the chiasmus, the inner part, the sea and the sea, that because he is the king and the maker, then finally that means he is the God of the universe. 
that Jesus is fully and completely God. And that's what we see in verse 3. Here's the middle of it. Here's the two C's. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. That's one C. And the exact representation of His being. That's the second C. Or in other words, Jesus is God made visible to us. You want to know what God is? What's God like? You want to see God? Look at Jesus. He's God made visible. Look, look what it says. He's the radiance of God's glory. So God, the, the burning glory of His holiness, all of His attributes, His purity, that's His glory. And that glory shines forth in rays of light. And that's what we see are the rays of light. And it says the sun is the radiance of that glory. He's the visible expression of the invisible God. Or look at the second uh, analogy. It says he's the exact representation of his being. Now that Greek word for exact representation, it means um, like an impress or a stamp. You, you know, some of you are into stamps. You know, these all these little wood carved stamps. A lot of you guys do this. I know I do too. You know, we're, we're really into stamping. And uh, just, that's a joke. Okay, so you take these stamps, right, and you put them in ink, and then you stamp them on a piece of paper. Okay. Now, if I were to do that and then take the stamp away and hide it and just show you the piece of paper, you would know exactly what the stamp looks like, even though you've never seen the stamp, because it's the exact representation. That's what that word means here, that that Jesus is the exact representation of the invisible God. Do you want to know what Jesus is or who God is and what he looks like? Look at Jesus. There's this kind of idea that's out in our society and in the academy that says, it goes something like this. Jesus was just a plain old rabbi. He wasn't anything special. He stirred up some trouble. He got some followers. And somehow they got traction. And then they had some followers and they passed on the stories. And over the years, the stories about Jesus kind of grew like a legend. Until finally, several centuries after Jesus, it had become so legendary that some people even began to think he was God. And so they had this council where these powerful churchmen who wanted to control people said, we should just make it official that Jesus is God and that way everyone will have to you know, come here to worship and give us their money. And, and so that's this sort of evolutionary idea. You know, you see this, some of you read the Da Vinci Code. That's the basic, you know, gobbledygook of the Da Vinci Code is that supposedly there's this slow evolution from a normal, regular guy named Jesus into the divine Christ of faith. You see it at the, the academic level, for instance, in the Jesus seminars and in so much of um, liberal theology today. This idea that, that Jesus evolved as a myth and as a legend. But the historical reality is that it was the first century Christians who ate with Jesus and walked with Jesus and knew him that were convinced that he was God. It was John, the apostle, who was one of Jesus' closest associates, who said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is what the early church believed, not some later development hundreds of years later. In fact, listen to what Jesus himself said. John chapter 12. Jesus cried out, When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in him who sent me. And get this. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. Wow. That's an enormous claim. Jesus to say, if you're looking at me, you're looking at God. Woo! You know, you don't say that unless you know there's something really unstable with you or or you're really twisted 
or you're really something that we've never met before. I mean, you just don't say things like that. And he said it again, John chapter 14. Philip, one of the apostles, said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Here we go. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is God made visible. That's what he claimed to be and what his followers and even the writer of Hebrews here understood was basic Christian teaching from the get-go, not evolved over the centuries, but from the beginning of the Christian faith. And so who is this Jesus? Who should we be listening to? How do we hear the voice of God? We have to listen to Jesus because he is the king and ruler of all things. He is the maker and sustainer of all things. And he is the God of all things. That is who Jesus is, the Son. And yet, we, we so rarely think of him that way today, I think. I think that this picture we have in Hebrews is so at odds with the way Jesus is presented to us in our culture and in, in our own thinking, that the Jesus that we're accustomed to is a much smaller, boiled down, watered down, downsized, microized, is that a word? Jesus. He's a smaller version, like a funhouse mirror, where someone who's really tall in the mirror looks like they're all scrunched and small. That's the Jesus that's presented to us today. Uh, this is the Jesus that comes to us in all of the, the religions of the world and in all of the philosophical systems of the world. You know, it drives me crazy, this little pet peeve I have, when people say, well, all religions are basically the same. I'm always like, what? <laughs> have you read anything? <laughs> They're very different. Very different. You know, it's just an ignorant thing to say. But I will say this. I do think there's one way in which all religions are the same. All religions and all philosophical systems in the world today deny and minimize this vision of Jesus. That either explicitly or implicitly. You know, examples. You know, how about our Muslim neighbors who tell us that Jesus was what? A prophet. And not even the last prophet. He was, you know, one prophet and then came Muhammad who was the greatest prophet. And so Jesus isn't even the son. He's not even the last prophet. He doesn't even make the confession. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. You know, where, what about Jesus? Where is he in the mix? He's just in the long line of prophets coming up to Muhammad. Or, or what about uh, Jehovah's Witnesses who tell us that Jesus is a, a supernatural being but he was created by God in the beginning. He's not God himself. Or what about Mormonism that says that, yeah, Jesus was a son of God but God had many sons. And, and we can become gods ourselves someday if we follow the Mormon path. You can actually become the god of your own world. Your wife will be eternally pregnant. How's that sound, ladies? And, um, and, and you, will have, you will have spirit children who will eternally populate this new world as the gods of that world. And those children, if they follow the path, can grow up to become gods of their own world. That's, that's the Mormon god. And so Jesus is just one of many in a massively expanding polytheistic vision. And what about probably the most common kind of religion in our culture today, I think the most growing one that's sort of seeping in everywhere, is what you might just call spirituality. You know, I'm not religious, but I'm very spiritual. That's what you hear more than anything. Spirituality, it's very diverse and it has different aspects to it, but if I could just sum up 
one of the core ideas of all spirituality, whatever it is, it's usually this. Spirituality says, if you want to hear from God, don't look up. Look in. This is what spirituality tells us. You know, you want to hear from God? Don't go to church. Don't, don't read other books. Just listen to your own heart. Listen to the voice within. God is within you. That's the teaching of spirituality in all of its different permutations and forms. Right? So who is Jesus in the spirituality world? Well, he's kind of a guru. And he can show you a way to the God within because he found it himself, but so can other people. I mean, you could do Zen. You could do other religions. You could do Karbala. There's lots of paths, but whatever. It's okay. And so Jesus, again, is reduced diminished and shrunken down and sold out. And he's no longer this God. And might I say that even in American evangelicalism, we so often shrink down Jesus from this vision of Jesus. We have reduced him down. And today what Jesus, not always, but so often can come across as we may not even realize we're doing it, but we, we send the message that Jesus is my personal buddy. You know? He's my buddy. He helps me. You know, Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt. <laughs> Jesus as dashboard bobblehead doll. Hey, Jesus, how am I doing? Oh, good. You know? Am I, am I okay, Jesus? You know? Can I do this, Jesus? Is that all right? You know? whatever we want. You know, Jesus as sort of religious uh, personal therapy device. Jesus as higher power who helps me achieve sobriety, but nothing more than that. Just the small self-help version of Jesus. And I think that's the version that we so often find. Uh, not even the people realize they're doing it. You look at our doctrinal statements in evangelical organizations, it still says Jesus is God in some way or another. But in terms of our actual teaching and living, I just look at my own soul and I'm like, I don't. I don't see this Jesus and I don't respond the way I should because I've shrunk him down to something really convenient and pocket-sized instead of being humbled on my face before this Jesus, ruler, maker, God of the universe. You know, What would happen to our worship in our evangelical churches if we were to regain a vision of this Jesus. You know, so often our worship is, you know, it's like the foam on top of a root beer float. It looks really thick, but you just you blow on it and it kind of flies away. And it's shallow and it's very much entertainment oriented and trying to get people fired up. But about what? It's just sort of like, there's nothing there. It's like cotton candy. You put it in your mouth and it just evaporates. What would our worship be like if we came in as a corporate body thinking about this Jesus. What would our evangelism be like? You know, I think our evangelism as evangelicals, you know, the early church, you know how they evangelized, right? They stood up and said, Jesus is Lord. So repent and humble yourself before the Savior, before He comes again. Flee from the wrath to come. They would preach like that, the early church. And, you know, it it wasn't very church growthy, but surprise, surprise, thousands came to Jesus. Right? And instead, we so often proclaim Jesus today like, hey man, Jesus, you know, he's cool. It's cool to follow Jesus, you know? And um, he can help you like with your problems, you know? 
And so if you have some problems, then you can just come to Jesus. If not, well, that's cool too. You know, whatever. That's like our evangelism. Instead of this vision of this Lord and Savior. What about our lives? Would, you know, in my own life, am I resisting the inherent idolatry of my soul because I'm seeing a fresh vision of the Lordship of Jesus? Or is my life compromised with sin and compromised with with worldliness, and I look just like the culture around me in terms of how I respond to things. Maybe the reason we don't hear God speaking today is because we're not listening in the right way. We're not listening to Jesus as is. Someday we're going to all face Him. We're going to stand before Him. Someday we will go through that you know, tunnel of light. But unlike what our culture promises us, on the other end of the tunnel of light is not going to be some celestial family reunion. When we get there, the voices we're going to meet is not going to be our you know, great-grandma and Uncle Sid and these people that we all expect to meet there. There's going to be one voice. It's going to be the voice that Paul heard on the road to Damascus that made Paul cower and say, Lord, who are you? And the voice said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And someday we're going to get to the end of that tunnel and he's going to say, I am Jesus whom you completely ignored your entire life. I am Jesus who you boiled down and made a fake version of to make yourself happy. I am Jesus whom you have not obeyed, not worshipped, not sought. And what will we say? And what will we say when it's a different version of Jesus then was sold to us when it's not this Jesus. Well, there is some good news. It's in verse 3. It's a little phrase. After he had provided purification for sins. The same Jesus who is King and Maker and God Almighty of the universe is also the one who died so that we could be forgiven of the very sins of rejecting Him, of the very callousness of heart that has spurned His Lordship. That same Jesus came and died so that we could be forgiven. And so I would just plead with you, extend an invitation to you to turn your hearts to Jesus, to humble yourself and cry out to Him while there is still time. These are the last days. This is it. There's no second story after this. This is the time. These are the days in which we are to come to Christ. And so, for the sake of your own soul, come to Jesus. Come know this Jesus. Not the Jesus of our own mental creation. But know the joy and freedom of serving this Jesus. Because the time is short. Let's pray.